Good morning. Good to be with you. And that hymn actually was, in God's providence, a great setup for my sermon. If you're familiar with that hymn, I Surrender All. Life is about giving our all to Jesus. And what a great opportunity to me to bring the Word of God to you uh, here at Christ the King Presbyterian Church. Uh, as been mentioned, I have a history with you. My wife and I have been here in your presence in this building, but we were here before you were in this building. <laughs> we have a history of how God has worked through Adam Bryce and the beginnings of this, and I had the privilege to be part of the, the session that initially worked this work. So coming back is just a, a sweet uh, walk back in the past for me. But what's even more exciting as a minister of the gospel is that you're not living in the past, are you? <laughs> You are where God has called you. You are continuing to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have a reputation, Christ the King. We talk about you. Others talk about you. You are seeking to be faithful to God. Thanks be to God for Christ the King Presbyterian Church and your focus on him. I have the privilege this morning of looking at Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at that in a moment, but I, I want to just put it in a context of, of us speaking of reputation. You know, we all, we all are known for some kind of things in our lives. You all, all of us have a reputation of one form or another. And in our culture and in our society, it's often associated with great accomplishments, isn't it? We know people by what they've done. Things like athletic achievements or, or musical talents or scholastic abilities. We seem to identify people by what they have done. What comes to your mind when I mention Taylor Swift, Jalen Hurts? Everybody knows them. What a reputation. They are well known. But yet, Hear me now, on a less public and dramatic level, we still have a reputation among those who know us a little more personally. And I would suggest it's not only our talents, but it's our personalities as well. We are known by the kind of person we are in addition to what we do outwardly, aren't we? What do people think when they hear your name? If I were to declare your name on, from this pulpit, what would people think that know you? Now, let me pause here. This sermon is not about a self-help approach to building a better image about what you look like. No, this sermon is more about what you and I who profess Christ, what we are to have in common as common qualities and identities as we live in this world, no matter what our achievements or our personalities. Let's look at that brief passage in Colossians chapter 3, the first four verses. Hear now the word of the Lord. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, 
then you will also appear with him in glory. Much to be considered here, but as a backdrop, keep this in mind. I believe the more we are hidden with Christ, the more alive we are with him in this world. The more you and I are hidden with Christ, the more alive you and I will be in this world. Think about it in terms of the scriptures and the teachings of the Bible. So many doctrines that we hear about from the Bible, they are necessarily connected with one another, aren't they? For example, the the holiness of God, the doctrine of the holiness of God. We need to understand that. But that's connected also to the doctrine of the sinfulness of man. What a contrast we need to understand. Then there's that pursuing love of God for his people in connection with the punishing presence of sin and the evil one. I would suggest to you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is similar in this, in that it's like a beautiful jewel with with many facets. The centerpiece of justification. That's not an isolated thing. It shines forth in different ways, like our own sanctification, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. But I would suggest to you in this passage that the Apostle Paul has one of those rich doctrines that becomes a major link to understanding the work and the call of Jesus. And that is the doctrine of our union with Christ, hidden in Christ. Jesus' personal saving work for Paul, it was not a wonderful doctrine to talk about. It was a life to be lived. He didn't just talk about this masterful doctrine. He lived it. He was hidden in Christ. A daily reality of the living Jesus living in him. He saw himself truly hidden, hidden in Christ. So as we look at this passage It's in the context of, you might know, that this is one of the prison epistles. Paul was in jail because he was hidden in Christ. He was proclaiming and living Jesus. That got him arrested and put in jail. But like any good elder, like any good elder caring for his flock, he was concerned about the doctrine and the life of those who confess Jesus. A good elder wants to make sure you're hearing truth. A good elder wants to make sure you're living truth. You can't separate those two. But he was especially bothered in this context by false teachers undermining and confusing the person and work of Jesus. And at this point, without sounding oversimplistic as a preacher, I want to say to you or suggest to you I think Paul's bottom line of the Christian life, it's all about Jesus. No more, no less. It's all about Jesus. With that in mind, I want to look at this passage kind of as a springboard 
to understand what the normal Christian life might look like for you and me. What does it look like to be hidden in Christ? It's a simple outline that I think can have a profound effect for us personally and especially on the reputation of our Savior. We'll look at it from a threefold aspect. First, of remembering where we have come from, and then where we are, and then where we are going. Where we've come from, where we are, and where we are going. I think it's a beautiful picture of the Christian life here. So the first aspect for you and I to understand being hidden with Christ It's found in that opening phrase, isn't it? Look again at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. As a Christian, as a professing Christian, you are first and foremost someone who has been transformed. Transformed, radically changed You are not the same anymore. That verse was already mentioned here, wasn't it? When you become a Christian, everything becomes new. There's nothing old anymore. It's all new. You have been brought from death to life. John Calvin, in his commentary on this, he, he clarifies it further about living the resurrected life. He says this, quote, No one can rise again with Christ if he has not first died with him. You can't rise with Jesus unless you die. Unless you die. There is no life in the Christian life where there is not first death. Something, someone has to die. The resurrected Jesus in our Apostles' Creed, you know this. We quote, on the third day, he rose from what? The dead. Jesus died. There is no life in Christ without the death of Christ. I don't think the Apostle Paul stated his idea of being hidden with Christ any more clearly than in Galatians 2.20. It's almost like someone said, Paul, who are you? And he says, here's who I am. I've been crucified with Christ. I don't live anymore. Christ lives in me. I'm hidden in Jesus. Friends, that is not a platitude you put on a card and make somebody feel good. That is one of the most powerful proclamations of identity with Jesus. Paul is saying, in essence, he's saying, I can't walk, I can't talk, I can't do anything without the living Christ. I'm not here to promote a concept or a movement. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to live in Jesus. That's who I am. I'm dead to myself. He no longer lives. And verse 3 is a reiteration of that. You are dead. You are dead, but you are alive in Christ. I feel the need to pause at this point and suggest 
Could that be the reason that many, many are trying to live the Christian life without the living Christ? Trying to keep up an image, a reputation without the living Jesus. I don't think, I don't think we think enough about that. Jesus died. He rose again for you. His death is your death. His life is your life. His reputation is your reputation. Please, please don't go on trying to live the life of Christ until you remember again what he did for you and what he has given to you. Paul could not do anything without the living Jesus. He was hidden in the presence of Christ. So that's where we have come from. We need to understand that we have been, we have been given new life because we have died as Christ has died. We have died with Christ. We are now risen with Christ. Remember that because that's critical for the second aspect it's a natural segue to understand where we are, where we are. It's implied in verse 1, but it's clear in verse 2, isn't it? Where are we right now? We are in this world. And Paul says in verse 2, that means to set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. He is basically saying, where are you and I now who have died with Christ, who are hidden with him? We're in this world. <laughs> We're in this world living it out. How do we do that? We are in this world, as scriptures say, but we are not of this world. We are passing through. In a real sense, brothers and sisters, we live in two worlds. So how do we avoid a reputation at times that many Christians seem to have that they declare to these Christians, you're so heavenly minded, what? You're no earthly good. But as a caveat, I fear that the opposite has been happening among the Christian church today, but that's for another sermon, amen? But think about it. What does it mean for you and I to live we, we are living daily, right now, where we are, we are living daily in a broken world, but we are anticipating a new one. But what do we do in the meantime? How do I get through this world that is opposed to my hidden Christ? I want to give us two suggestions for setting our minds on things above. But there's a caveat I have to keep saying. It has to flow. It must flow from that first point. Who are you? Who are you? We all should be saying, I'm, I'm dead. <laughs> I'm crucified with Christ. I don't live anymore. Please don't go on until you continue to wrestle with that identity. Our union with Christ. Who you are. Who you and I are will whether you like it or not, it will be reflected in how we live. You can't avoid it even when you try. The first suggestion then is this. Let's make an intentional habit of thinking 
about eternal things. To set your mind on something, it implies an effort that is consistent and disciplined. Don't wait for a crisis to think about God. Get in the habit of thinking about him. But let's also be aware it's not natural and easy, is it? It's hard. The 17th century theologian John Owen, if you might be familiar with him, he wrote profusely, thousands of pages. How did he do that without a computer, amen? How did the guy write as much as he wrote? But he was obsessed with understanding the gospel. And he wrote a section over 200 pages on this simple title. The title was this, Spiritual Mindedness. <laughs> I grabbed that book as soon as I saw the title. How do I keep mindful of Jesus? And he says this in that context about spiritual mindedness. It's a, it's a detailed account of how to set our minds on it. And he says this, quote, to be spiritually minded is not merely to have the idea and knowledge of spiritual things in our minds. It is to have our minds filled with heavenly things because we love them and find great joy and delight in them. The spiritually minded person especially delights to think of Christ seated at the right hand of God. Have you thought about him lately? Have you delighted in him lately? It's a discipline, is it not? The habit of having a daily eternal perspective, that is not easy, as I've mentioned, and it's not always natural to our flesh living in this world. Here's one suggestion in that first suggestion to do. It doesn't take a lot of effort. Be sure to every day, at least once a day, you pause for a few minutes just to acknowledge God. Whether driving or walking, just stop and speak to him silently or out loud to remember who he is and who you are in relationship to him. You don't have to have a long, extensive quiet time. In the middle of the day, would you just stop? God, thank you that you are. Jesus, thank you that even if I can't see you or feel you right, and that's not the issue you have promised to be with. Take some discipline to take a practice, to think sometime during the day besides your quiet time that God is and that you are hidden in Christ. A second suggestion is simply to remember Jesus. Now, again, that sounds kind of naive and simplistic, but brothers and sisters, do we think and simply see the bottom line of our Christian life is Jesus? It's all about him. I think verse three is a key that I would encourage you to memorize. Paul says you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Would you just recite that once a day or once a week? Just that's who you are. And remind yourself of that. The more we are hidden with him, the more we will reflect him. Paul clarifies this even further, I think, when he reminds us uh, in his letter to the Corinthians 
at the culmination of what he's explaining about what we have with Christ. But he says, but we have the mind of Christ. (laughs) Did you ever want to be able to think like Jesus thought? (laughs) Live like Jesus lived? You have the mind of Christ. What does that mean? Think about it. (laughs) More than once a week. More than a worship service. Think about it. Jesus knew. He knew, didn't he, what it was like to live in two worlds. Talk about the challenge of working it out in this world. He lived. He loved. He died in this world mindful of his father and of his father's honor. You remember what he said when he was confronted by his own disciples at the woman at the well when they came back and they brought food. And they said, and Jesus said, I don't need any food. And they're grumbling. Who fed him? What's going on? Here's my food. I want to do whatever my father wants me to do. I'm so alive when he is honored. I'm so alive when I'm hidden in him. I want to do what my father wants me to do. What is your nourishment? Do you think about Jesus and what he's done? So we see that that flow, that transition of we need to understand, based on this, where we've come from, where we are in this context. But I think Paul's also saying, don't forget where we are going. A Christian is alive with their identity, alive with living it out, but alive with anticipation. I can't wait. I can't wait. Jesus really couldn't wait to go home because he didn't have to, at that point, looking forward to the day, he didn't have to walk by faith anymore. Amen? To look at a time, I don't have to walk by faith. I see clearly. So where are we going? And I'd suggest this final aspect is not an appendage. It's not a nice addition. In a real sense, this third aspect is the culmination of our understanding of the normal Christian life. What does he say in verse 4? When Christ, who is your life, when he appears, he's coming, then you also will appear with him in glory. Anticipation. Jesus came to give you hope and a home. And he is coming again to take you and me home. This is not home. Nice place to visit. (laughs) I don't want to live here. I want to live with my Savior where I see him face to face. Jesus says, "I'm, I'm coming. Get ready. I am coming. It will happen. Friends, the more we grow in Christ, I think the more we are aware of the tension of these two worlds. Theologians call that tension the already and the not yet. (laughs) I already get it, but I don't fully get it. (laughs) I know I'm saved, but I'm not fully saved. How do I live in this broken world? We are mindful daily of, of the pain of sin and the call to live for Christ in this broken world. We know there is a better life to come. Oh, God, bring it. Why does John finish his writing in Revelation with Maranatha? You know what that means. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Get me out of here. I don't want to be here anymore. I want to be with you. 
I think one of the best ways, one of the best ways uh, we need to remember this is, is to understand that that battle of sin, it, that's a daily reminder. By his spirit, we are mindful in that context. Our only hope is that we are hidden in Christ, not just as a protection, but as a hopeful confidence. And I think one of the best ways to be preparing for that final day when Jesus comes and he fully reveals himself, one of the best ways for you and I to get ready is to do what we're doing right now. Let's get together. Let's worship God together. Let's be reminded who we really are. We are here worshiping together. Why? Because if you're like me, I need to be reminded of eternal things. And one of the best ways to do it is to be with people who have the same hunger. There's a sociological principle. You tend to become like the people you hang with. I want to be around people who are hungry for Jesus. I want to be with them as much as I can. You and I are worshiping. This is not an escape. Oh, let's run away and get away from this bad world. This is an oasis. This is a coming to be refreshed and reminded. Oh, God, you are the Lord, and you have given me everything in Christ. I want to remember that. Brothers and sisters, this is not a, a wonderful volunteer thing. You're, this is a necessity that you and I come together to worship eternal things in Christ Jesus. What, what will it look like when he comes? I don't know, but I want to be ready. So let me conclude this sermon aspect with what I began with. How's your reputation? What are people thinking when they think of you individually and corporately? What are you living for? And more importantly, who are you living for? The incredible beauty of the gospel for those who have trusted in Jesus alone is that in a real sense, brothers and sisters, his reputation is now our reputation. Our audience is not ultimately what the world thinks. Our audience is the Lord God himself. And how does God see you and me? Go back to the gospel. He sees you and me who have trusted in Jesus. He sees us the same way he sees his son. Righteous and holy. Why? Because we have died. We're dead. And we are now hidden with Christ. He sees Jesus. He sees the reputation of his son when he looks at you. Oh, we can't. Yes, he can. Why? Because you're dead. You're not alive in yourself. You're alive in Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, look again. Look again at the cross. Look at Jesus, how much he loves you. And he is taking care of your reputation before the only one who really matters. The reputation of Jesus, I believe, should be the filter of life for us all. How is my life making him look in this dark and broken world? 
I think at the conclusion of one of the conclusions of this chapter towards the end in verse 17 is what Paul had in mind. I, I love his phrase at the end of describing what the Christian life looks like. He says this, whatever you do in word or in deed, and the phrase that haunts me, he says, do it in the name of Jesus. That means when the world hears me speak, I want the world to know I'm doing this in the reputation and the name of Jesus. I want my Savior to be honored. That should be a filter that makes me think twice about what I'm saying, what I'm thinking, what I'm doing. It's for Jesus' sake, not for mine. Do I believe that? I can't if I'm not hidden in Christ. You know, there's a reference point for me at times like this that and I think about my own struggle of what it means to be hidden with Christ and living for him and with him. And that reference point is my own mother. <laughs> my mother died years ago. Uh, she struggled her final years with breast cancer and glaucoma. If you know anything about glaucoma, it's a blinding disease. It, it takes your sight away. And she had a very serious condition with that. And I remember towards the end, I still remember my mother saying to me, Jerry, I'm so scared. I'm more scared of going blind than I am of dying with cancer. I can't see you as much, and I can't see my grandchildren. I see shadows, and I can't I just about recognize, even if you're in the room, I'm scared. I can't see you as much, Jerry. I'm frightened, more frightened than cancer. I found myself thinking more and more how true that is spiritually. My biggest fear is that I'll lose sight of the cross. I'll go blind. I won't see Jesus as I need to see him. I'll get so caught up in myself and my attempts, I'll lose sight of who I really am in Christ. To go through a day, a week or a season without knowing that my life is hidden with Christ, that's frightening. But it's so easy, brothers and sisters. Please, let's strive to believe the gospel Let's live it out for his sake, knowing what he's done for us. Let's go forth remembering who we are. And let's live with him and for him. And may Jesus Christ be praised. Amen? Let's pray together. Our good and gracious Father in heaven, God, thank you. Thank you that your love is beyond comprehension, that you have done the incomprehensible. You have sent your only son to die a death we deserve to die, paid a price we could never pay, to shower us, shower us with a love that is eternal and that you love us so much you are preparing even now a place for us. But we confess, God, we or in a broken world and we so easily lose sight, would you turn our eyes upon Jesus? Let us truly look full in his wonderful face so that the things of earth would grow strangely dim and the light of his glory and his grace. And we pray in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.